We're looking at the subject today of God's royal rule in salvation. If you look at your bulletin outline, you'll see the first point is to note that men are hopelessly dead towards God. Have you ever contemplated the tremendous Magungas power and spiritual energy that is required to bring sinners out of spiritual deadness to life, out of blindness to sight. A virtual resurrection must occur. The first Adam drove a stake in our hearts and the entire race died. The last Adam, who is Jesus, must not only pull the stake out, he must heal the decayed tissue and he must breathe new life into the dead corpse. This is not resuscitation with CPR or a defibrillator or of someone who has momentarily stopped breathing. No, this is walking among the tombstones and the grave sites of Thornville and Metamora cemeteries and commanding the graves, live, live, and then seeing the graves fold open, the caskets yield living beings. That's what we are talking about. And as David contemplates this truth, he writes in verse 20 of our text, Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Escape from death. If you ever walk through a cemetery, I've done this at times. <clears throat> I like to do it. I like to read the tombstones because you will see immediately an ability on your part to distinguish between those who've died in the faith of Christ and those who haven't. You've got the blithering silliness that people put on tombs and then you have the serious contemplation and praise of God. But if you've ever walked through a cemetery and you've passed by the crypt of a wealthy family, it'd be like a small stone building into which are placed the vaults of various deceased family members. And more than likely there would be a wrought iron gate on the crypt and on the gate there would be a secure lock. Well, the lock is there not to keep the dead in, but to keep the vandals out. The dead are contained without necessity of lock. Their absence of life is the lock. They are going nowhere under their own power. Dead is dead. This is the picture that the Bible paints when Paul talks about being dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 verse 1. Or again, when speaking of the pleasures-seeking woman as being dead while she lives, 1 Timothy 5 verse 6. Well, how's that going to change? Paul writing to the Ephesian church writes these words, I pray 
that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which God has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength which He exerted in Christ Jesus when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Ephesians 1, verse 18 through 23. I think everyone has the concept that when a person dies physically, it is virtually impossible to restore them to life short of a divine miracle. There are accounts in the Bible of the dead being resurrected to life. And in every incident, it was demonstrated that such an event occurred by nothing less than divine intervention. Classic example that we have in the New Testament other than Christ is at the tomb of Lazarus, friend of Jesus, brother to Mary and Martha. He became very ill while Jesus was out of the country and by the time Jesus returned the funeral had already taken place and Lazarus had been entombed already for four days. When Jesus commanded the mourners to remove the stone that gated the sepulcher, Martha protested, saying, here's what she said, But Lord, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Now think about this, Palestine, hot, dry climate, John 11, verse 39, no um, formaldehyde, no embalming taking place. Not according to Jewish burial anyway. They didn't bury like the Egyptians did. No mummification taking place. And so she says, by this time there is a bad odor. It was Martha's way of saying to Jesus, It's too late. It is simply too late. Decomposition has already set in. The blood has coagulated. The flesh is decaying. Nothing can be done. And may I say that Martha was absolutely right. Absolutely right. Nothing by man could be done. Even with our most knowledgeable paramedics of today who possess the latest high-tech equipment and training, nothing could be done to a person dead and in the sepulcher for days. Might as well leave the dead man at rest. 
But you know, Jesus refused to leave it there. Instead, he challenged Martha, saying, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? John 11, verse 40. That is, you would see a demonstration of God's power and glory. He had told her earlier, John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. You want to talk about life? I'm it. You want to talk about resurrection? I'm it. I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even though he dies. God can do the impossible. Jesus is God. Jesus can do the impossible. And so, the whole idea of deadness to us, or being dead, rings up in our mind. It's over. It's done. It's too late. It's impossible. Dead is dead. That's it. Now when we come to spiritual death, second point in your outline, and the need for spiritual resurrection to occur, an incredulity sets in on us. I mean, we, we take what we know about physical death, and now spiritual death, we bring it over here to spiritual death, and we find it incredible. We can agree wholeheartedly with Martha when she expresses the utter hopelessness of raising her dead brother from the tomb. Because we have stood by the gravesites of our deceased loved ones and we have been overwhelmed with the reality, and may I say the finality, of death. We're convinced that all of the prayers in the world will not result in them coming out of the grave. We understand this about death in general. But spiritual death? Firstly, we're not sure of the definition. What is spiritual death? And secondly, we believe that the word death, as used with regard to the soul, cannot have the same incapacity and finality as it does when we say, so-and-so died this week and the funeral is on Tuesday. I was just to a funeral <clears throat> this week on Friday from one of the committees of, that I work with. There's a sense of finality on that. Does that come over in the spiritual realm? Well, let's begin with definition. What do we mean when we say people are spiritually dead? Let me read some scriptures for you, some I've already read. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. So here we learn that spiritual death has to do with being entombed in a state of sin and transgression from which there is no escape. Dan was talking about that in the adult class this morning, the idea of depravity. This is what we are. We are sinners by nature or sinners by birth and sinning is what we do. We know how to do that. Verse 2 of the same text, Ephesians chapter 2, says God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
So the whole concept being made alive means that we were dead before. You're beginning to see that there is such a thing as uh, spiritual death. Or in Colossians, Paul writes, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. So being dead spiritually has something to do with ongoing sin, for which there has been no forgiveness as of yet. And then we read this text from 1 Timothy 5, verse 6. Very important text. The widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. So here you have the concept that a person can have mobility, they can have agility physically, they can speak and talk and move and think and act and still be dead. Well, obviously it's not physical death, right? Because they're moving, they're functioning, they're dead in some other dimension. Spiritually dead. And then Jesus to John in the Revelation says, To the angel of the church of Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, and I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Revelation 3 and verse 1. So here, Jesus is addressing people who are spiritually dead, and guess what? They're in the church. Whoa. In the church, yeah, in the church where spiritual life abounds in God's true people, there are those that are spiritually dead. Now they have a reputation for being alive because they're in the church, but they're dead. They're dead spiritually. Now I take from all of these scriptures that there is firstly such a thing as being spiritually dead. And then the definition is something like this. To be spiritually dead means to be dead towards God and godliness and alive, alive towards sin and breaking the holy law of God by nature, by preference, by choice. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. Now, to hone this definition a little more sharply, I've listed in your bulletin six traits of spiritual deadness. Six traits. There's probably more, but these are the ones that I found to be very obvious. Number one, the spiritually, and by the way, you can have some of these or all of these, any one of them will kill you. takes only one arrow through the heart to render you, you dead. Spiritually dead are often religious, but they're not transformed spiritually. And the good example of these is the Pharisees, who were rabbis, that is teachers, who taught theology in the Jewish synagogues and schools. They actively 
sought converts to Judaism and they would travel out of the country to do so. So they had what we might call the missionary spirit. They wanted to promote their teachings of Judaism and so on. They prayed openly and often in the marketplace for people to see them about their work. They wore scripture verses. You ever have a t-shirt with a scripture verse printed on it or on the back of it? They wore scripture verses in little leather pouches which they tied to their foreheads. And perhaps you've seen some drawings of the Pharisees with these phylacteries they were called. And then they, you know, this is, this is before the day of the printed Bible. You've got to remember that. So they had scribes and you know, everything was hand lettered and they would take little portions of scripture, Bible verses. We're kind of trying to do that in our bulletin, the verse of the week kind of thing. They would take scripture verses and print them out, have the scribes hand ladder them, put them in these little leather pouches, and then they'd tie them around their forehead. They tithed, they tithed their material possessions right down to the herbs in their garden, and they donated the proceeds to the temple. Well, you're going to get this tithing right. God requires 10% of everything that we have, so we're going to tithe even the herbs in our garden. They studied the Bible. They could quote Moses' writings. In particular, they loved Moses' writings. First five books of the Bible. And yet, and yet, for all this religious fervor, Jesus said of them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but in the, on the inside you're full of get it now dead men's bones and everything unclean in the same way on the outside you appear to people as righteous but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy get the next word and wickedness Matthew 23 verse 27 and 28. They're like the church of Sardis that we just read about in Revelation. They had a reputation for being alive spiritually when they were really dead and full of wickedness. Religious, but lost. Religious, but dead. Secondly, Another trait of the spiritually dead is that they nitpick on minor spiritual issues but miss the greater good. Again, woe to you teachers of the law, that would be the scribes by the way, and the Pharisees, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth, I already alluded to this, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but, but, Jesus says here, you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Now, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Matthew 23, 23 and 24. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the spiritually dead major in the minors 
because they are trying to show have how fastidious they are to religious duty. Oh, the law says tithe. God is required to get 10%. Well, we're very fastidious about that. We even go out there and count the dill and the mint. 90% for us, 10% for God, 90% for us, 10% for God. Nitpickers. On these kind of details. Are you a nitpicker on religious issues? Could be a sign of spiritual death. Number three. They know the law of God, but not the God of the law. They use the law like a club to criticize others and judge others. But they do not comply themselves. Listen to Paul's analysis. Now you, he says, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, you who teach others, do you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, <laughs> do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Romans 2. Verse 17 through 23. What is Paul saying? He's saying they have a book learning of theological principles, but they're not putting those things into practice. And when that is, a, is the case, it evidences spiritual death. Jesus put it this way to his disciples. And it's similar, very similar. He says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. Now Moses is dead and gone, but what he, what he means is, they promote themselves as the teacher, teachers of the Mosaic law. They sit in Moses' seat. And obviously they did a pretty good job of it. Because the next statement says this, So you, you my disciples, must obey them, and do everything they tell you. He's referring to their teaching. They're teaching God's law, and as teachers of God's law, they're doing a pretty good job of it. So, you know, whatever they teach about Moses and, and so forth is, is good stuff. You must obey that. But, now Jesus goes on here, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Matthew 23, verse 2 and 3. They had the doctrines down, but not the practice. They could espouse the law without knowing the God of the law. 
without having a heart to do the very things that they were teaching others to do. And that agrees with Romans 2 that we read. Fourth trait of spiritual deadness is a pursuit of the world and the pleasures of the flesh and a disdain for God's righteousness. Let me read it for you. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mindset on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is, here it is, death. That is, it leads to death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. People dead towards God would never, would, they would never, listen to me, they would never think of doing what Moses did, who had become a prince of Egypt, through adoption by Pharaoh's daughter. What did Moses do? Let me read it for you. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, that is, when he became a man, became of age, could make his own decisions, it wasn't Pharaoh's daughter, his adopted mom, it wasn't her telling him how to live and what to learn and all of those things. By faith, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God, the Israelites, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. And by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Hebrews 11, 24 through 27. person who is dead spiritually would never opt for God and his righteousness over the treasures of earth. That's the problem. It's one of the big problems. People know when they come to Christ, He gets first place all the time and not all the other baubles that the world offers to us. Number five. Those dead towards God do not understand spiritual truths, but they ridicule them as being foolish and unimportant. Let me read it for you. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Or again, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ. Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. Foolishness 
to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 through 25. Basically, Paul is saying they don't get it. They don't get it. The spiritually dead don't get it. They're all into worldly wisdom and philosophy and what I want and what I think. And they're not attuned to what God is saying, what God wants, what God thinks, what God commands. And if there's any little, little bit of light that kind of dawns in, it's like the parable of the sower. The devil comes along and snatches it away, that light, that truth, before it has time to take root and really do something in a person's life. It's a battle for men's souls, Christ versus the evil one. Number six, the spiritually dead are able to see the sins of others. They are, but they're blind to their own sin. They're unable to promote the teachings of God over the traditions of men. Jesus said to his hearers that day, What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. And then the disciples came to him and, and, and said, Do you know? that the Pharisees were offended when you said that. And he replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. Listen to this terminology. Very picturesque. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man... Both are going to fall into the pit. So they don't have any truth. They're promoting their traditions. On another occasion, Jesus said, you nullify the word of God by your traditions. He told the Pharisees like that. You have what you've always done. You got all of your religious rights in order, and you've added to the law, and you got, you know, the Sabbath day's journey, which isn't in the book, but you put it in there anyway, and you, and you heap heavy burdens on top of the widows, and you require men to carry those kind of things in order to be more holy than what God even demands. You have all your traditions, but you nullify the Word of God by those things. And the disciples looked at him and they said, explain the parable to us. What is, what is this? What makes a person clean or dirty or whatever? Can you tell us? Don't you see, he says, that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart 
It's talking about the mind. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what makes a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Matthew 15, verse 11 through 20. And there again is one of those traditions, you see. Got to wash your hands before you eat. That's good. We do it for hygienic reasons. They did it for ceremonial cleanliness. The Jews did. Well, you know, really got to come clean before God. And Jesus says, you know, that isn't what makes a person dirty. What makes them dirty is what's in the heart, what's in the mind, what's in the soul. And unless you get in there and clean that, you're never going to be clean. They taught their traditions and nullified the scriptures. Now, this business of being dead spiritually requires the resurrection power of God. And that's your second point in the outline. And people are dead without feeling it. I hope I've convinced you from the Bible that the scriptures do describe and define such a thing as being spiritually dead, dead towards God. And as we have been learning with regard to guilt and guilt feelings, guilt is firstly objective. It has to do with real sin and a breach of God's law. And feelings of guilt are subjective and they may relate to real or imaginary sin. Same goes for this reality of being dead towards God. Before the Spirit's regeneration or resurrection of the soul, deadness is a reality whether you feel it to be so or not. It's an objective reality. We're such a feely-touchy society that it's easy for us to dismiss anything that is not supported by our emotions. I don't feel it. People even use that expression. Consider a football coach at halftime. He's talking to his team, which is behind 21 to 3. But instead of dealing with the reality that the offensive line of the opposing team consists of six foot four giants weighing each 275 pounds, what does he do? He opts to give his team a little pep talk. You might be small, he says to his guys, but you're mighty. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Ah, race is not to the swift and to the strong, but to the slow and steady. What do you say, men? We're invincible, right? Can you feel it? Can you see it? Are you with me, men? And there's some little mumbling that goes under the breath or no sound at all. Why? Because feeling you will win... It's not the same as knowing those plays and knowing those strategies which will assure victory. And folks, feeling that you're alive and that you can respond aright to God and the gospel is like this coach giving his pep talk that has no reality in objective truth. Unless the coach admits that his men need to rethink their position and make radical changes, his team is going to get pounded into the ground in disgrace come the second half. 
But you know, the spiritually dead are more desperate than that. They cannot even change strategies. Worse, they don't see the need to do so. The will isn't there. The want to is headed in a different direction and there's no fuel in the tank to go the distance. The dead just rot in the grave. They cannot resuscitate themselves. They will go the way of all sinners unless, un, until God intervenes. They're dead. Even though they don't feel that it is so. And secondly, if they come alive, they come alive without effecting it. Spiritually dead do not need a pep talk. They do not need a coach to tell them how to change and what to do. They need resurrection. Resurrection, that's what they need. They need life. And what does our text say? Psalm 68, verse 19 and 20. Praise be to the Lord, the God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Jesus put it this way, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He pleases to give it. John 5, verse 21. Spiritual life, which results in eternal life, is the exclusive work of the Sovereign Lord. Many scriptures say this. In John 10, Jesus says to my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. John 10, verse 27 through 30. I give them eternal life. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus said, For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those that you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. John 17, verse 2 and 3. This is amply illustrated at the preaching of the gospel by Paul and Barnabas in Antioch. And there was a mixed reaction. We read, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they talked abusively against what Paul was saying. And then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made 
you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Acts 13, verse 45 through 49. Now understand what's going on here. At Pisidian Antioch, in the province of Galatia, Paul taught Jews and God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue concerning Jesus Christ. He taught about His death, taught about His burial, taught about His resurrection. Both groups, Jews and Gentiles, both groups heard the same preachers, Paul and Barnabas. Both heard the same identical message. Both were present at the same meeting and heard the message together. That is, they were in the same environment, the synagogue. Both heard copious references to the Old Testament scriptures showing God's prediction of Jesus' work and ministry. Both had the same opportunity to follow Paul and Barnabas after adjournment to ask and receive answers toward their questions. Both were citizens of Antioch and could have invited their friends to hear the next lecture, which was the next Sabbath day, just seven days away. So what we have here is same, same, same. Same, same, same. With everything being the same, humanly speaking, why the mixed reaction? Why did the Jewish constituency of the group talk abusively against, Acts 13, verse 45, what Paul and Barnabas had preached? Verse 46, why did they reject it? While the Gentiles, the, the Greeks that were present, were glad, writes Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, were glad about the message and honored the word of the Lord. This is phenomenal. Think about this. In a group consisting of same, 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 all of a sudden we have different. The Jews who had the advantage of possessing and knowing the scriptures spoke abusively against the gospel and rejected it, while the Greeks, with whom the scriptures were not very familiar, <laughs> gladly received the gospel and honored the word. What or who made the difference? Well, Luke, writing of the Gentiles in the group, says this, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Brethren, eternal life is God's gift by appointment. And so all the means necessary to receive it are God's gifts as well. Repentance, in this case faith, to believe. David knew this. David taught this. And that's why he writes in our text, 
Our God is a God who saves from the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. It's from Him. In Romans 9, Paul actually quotes God. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Romans 9, verse 15 and 16. If you're alive spiritually this morning, you are so without effecting it. Spiritual life is a work of mercy of the Sovereign Lord. Now if you're with me to this point, even as an unbeliever, you can see that in the final analysis, eternal life does not depend on you, but upon the will of the Sovereign Lord in whom alone is the escape from death. And while there's nothing you can do to influence God's decision on life eternal, you can, get it now, beg for mercy. I think it's important that we understand what Paul was saying there in Romans 9. You can beg for mercy if your pride will let you do so. Now that's the issue, isn't it? That's it. It is the difference between the jealous Jews who spoke abusively against the gospel Paul preached and the humble Gentiles who were just thrilled that Paul had come to their town with such good news. They weren't standing on ceremony. May I say that sinners, and especially religious sinners, do not want to hear that all of their fastidious obedience to the moral principles of the law count for nothing. They don't want to hear that. They disdain mercy. They hate grace. Because, because it places everyone on the same plane. Prostitute with theologian. Same plane. Ignorant and unlearned with the college graduate, with the seminary graduate. It gives no recognition to position or privilege. Just grace. Just mercy. Brethren, Jesus died for sinners who by that sin were dead towards God. He is sovereign through it all. And here is our great hope. Jesus said it. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. Jesus is speaking. I desire mercy not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners.
Matthew 9, verse 12 and 13. And brethren, Jesus here is disclosing the wish of his heart. And the desire of his heart is not to withhold mercy, but to extend it to all who call out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Luke 18, verse 13. To be a sinner in need of mercy is to be in the best position possible for eternal life. You're in the best place possible. Because God isn't looking for sacrifices from you. He's looking for sick people that need to be healed. He's looking for sinners that are dead in trespasses and sin who need mercy. He's looking for people who are not trying to work their way to heaven but understand how futile they are in their attempts and who are crying out, God, God, just be merciful to me. This was the Gentiles at Antioch, but it wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Jews. We have the law. We know the law. We have been followers of Jehovah since Old Testament days. We don't need to hear from this guy coming in and talking about Jesus Christ and mercy and grace. No, no. Salvation is by the law. If you live that way, you're going to die in your sins. But if you come to God in mercy, begging for it, you can do that. You can't change the mind of God and what He's determined to do. But you can cry for mercy. May God hear and answer your prayer this morning. And life without you affecting it may be the result. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Teach us of the deadness of our heart, also of our pride. Yeah, we like to stand on our laurels, but when we come before you, there is no laurels. You will acknowledge your son's work, but you won't acknowledge ours. You will grant us grace and mercy, but you will not enter into partnership with us. Lord, if we're religious this morning, if we're here because it's the thing to do, and because we're members of the church or friends of the church, but we're trusting in a wrong way of standing before you, then forgive us for our pride. Grant to us your mercy this day and your grace to us, to, grace to see ourselves in the light of the gospel that Jesus doesn't need our help. He is the sovereign Lord that grants escape from death. And only God can give life to the dead. Resurrect us this day. Renew our spirit. If we already know you, and if we don't know you this day, may we find mercy at the foot of the cross where we pray in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. Our closing hymn is from...